FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, If we were not living right now with the coronavirus sheltering in place, Tom Faust, Amber Miss Dawes, uh, Jesse Neiswanger, a couple of our other engineers, and I would all be down in Savannah right now at the invitation of the Women Voters of Coastal Georgia, League of Women Voters of Coastal Georgia, uh, who are doing a series of conversations this year to mark the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, uh, they invited us to come down to be a part of all of that. And uh, they've put together a pretty stellar lineup uh, for the discussion we're going to have today. I'll, uh, introduce, I'll tell you what, I'll introduce everybody now. And then I want to just go back, since we're celebrating the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, let's, let's go back a little and take a look at the implications of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so with us today, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, we're glad to have you here. You would have been with us in Savannah had all things been uh, equal, Mr. Secretary, but uh, yes. we're glad you're here now. You're having a Thank rather you. busy year so far. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a year with uh, lots of uh, obstacles and challenges to overcome, but we're doing just fine. And we're going to talk about all that coming up in a minute. Uh, one of your predecessors, uh, Kathy Cox, is with us. Kathy, we're glad to have you here. She is now the dean of the Walter F. George School of Law at Mercer University in Macon. How are you doing, Kathy? Doing well, Bill. I had planned to be in Savannah as well, but glad to join you today. Yeah, everybody was Yeah, we were all going to be down there. Uh, the chairman of the Chatham County Commission, Al Scott, uh, joins us from down in Savannah. Al, thank you for being with us. Are you holding up all right down there? Oh, yeah. I'm in the office every day uh, and meeting, uh, like everybody else, talking about the coronavirus and its impact on the county. Well, I hope you're wearing a mask, Al. <laughs> Not in my office. <laughs> oh, okay. And we're also joined by the executive editor of the Savannah Morning News, Susan Catron. Susan, like all news organizations across the state and the country, I'm sure you've been scrambling like crazy covering coronavirus stories for weeks and weeks we now. Re- yeah, we really have. Uh, and we're all doing it from stay at home and from wherever we need to go to do to do what we have to do. You know, it's the right thing. We represent uh, everyone as we get out and get information. But, but, yeah, we've been scrambling, but it's, it's been different. It's, it's used to we thought of our big news event as a hurricane, and this is very different and um, interesting. This is a very hard time for so many people, and sadly we've lost so many lives in all of this. And, and being mindful of that, for me, is important. It's also, Susan, I think, and I've said this on the air before, Uh, This is also, without question, the most important story that any of us as journalists are likely to cover in our lifetimes. It is. In fact, we've referred to it as as the story of our century, and and that's how we try to come at things. Um, As part documentary 
making sure that whatever archives we leave are accurate and looking ahead to help our readers figure out what's next because it, we're not going to come out in a in the same world we left. All right, because um, the League of Women Voters uh, it, uh, down there uh, are celebrating the 55th anniversary of the signing of the Equal Rights, Eating uh, Equal Vote, the, I'm sorry, the Voting Rights Act, uh, I thought it might be worth taking just a moment to reflect on exactly what that was. President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law on August 6th of uh, 1965, and at the time it was considered the single most important piece of uh, equal rights legislation uh, in, in many decades. But the, the speech that he'll probably always be remembered for uh, came in the spring when he went before a joint session of Congress and made it clear to them he wanted this passed. He, on March 15th, he stood in front of Congress, and he said words that we remember uh, to this day. He talked about discrimination in the form of literacy, knowledge, or character tests that were administered solely to African Americans to keep them from being able to vote, despite the fact that the 15th Amendment was supposed to have given him that right back in the days following the Civil War. The speech was delivered, it's important to remember, eight days after Selma, after the riots in Selma, where the country got to see uh, the repressive and violent tactics of the law enforcement community there to the civil rights marchers who ha were planning to march from Selma to Montgomery. And so on March 15th, among other things, Lyndon B. Johnson said their cause must be our cause, too because it is not just Negroes, but really it is all of us who most over, must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And then he appropriated the words from the civil rights marchers themselves, from Martin Luther King Jr. And he said, and we shall overcome. And uh, after tremendous debate, uh, the, that bill was passed into law, finally on August 6, uh, 1960. Five. Um, Kathy Cox, you're you, you know you're down there at the Walter George Law School, so if you don't mind, let me just ask you to reflect on just how important the uh, Voting Rights Act uh, became to all of us. Bill, the Voting Rights Act was such a turning point for America because, as you referenced, we had gone through the Civil War. We had adopted amendments to the Constitution, which purportedly guaranteed the rights uh, of citizens to vote. But until the Voting Rights Act was passed, it really wasn't made true to large swaths of our population, particularly African-Americans and people of color. Um, from the time of the 15th Amendment's adoption until the Voting Rights Act, there was a horrible history in this country of efforts to just stop African-Americans and people of color from voting. Um, 
and we could spend the whole program talking about that, but it really was not until Congress took that step of adopting the Voting Rights Act that we really began to see uh, a truer opportunity and a leveling of the playing field for all Americans to begin to exercise in a free manner their right to vote in this country. Um, I think we need to point out that one of the aspects of the Voting Rights Act, uh, which was uh, so-called preclearance, when states in the South, certain states in the South, including, of course, Georgia, were required before they made any changes in their voting laws. And, and Secretary Raffensperger, you're well aware of what uh, this uh, used to be required here, uh, was yeah. overturned by the United States Supreme Court. We no longer have preclearance and and. Mr. Secretary, without asking you to choose sides on that one, that is a contentious matter to this very day. Well, it is. I do think, though, that Georgia has changed. They've done a 180, and you look at the progress that, you know, Georgia has made. Uh, I believe that, you know, voting in Georgia, in fact, many could make the case that it's actually easier to vote in Georgia than some of the states. Um, you know, look at we have had no excuse absentee voting since 2005. We've had record registrations. We were one of the first states that have done online uh, uh, automated voter registration through the DDS and also through the MVP, the Secretary of State website. So we've actually uh, reached out and engaged voters. So we have a great story to tell. And obviously, uh, as, as uh, I was say, Secretary Cox, but as Dean Cox said, uh, the past, you know, is really an ugly, uh, dark chapters, you know, in uh, both Georgia history and our national history. But uh, I'm so grateful that uh, I think that we have reached a point uh, where we'd really be proud of the efforts we've made in Georgia. And uh, we're just building on the success of our prior secretaries of state. Al Scott, I don't think there's any question that what uh, Secretary Raffensperger is saying about the uh, much broader ways in which people can register to vote Um uh, the fact of the matter is that when it comes to drawing district lines, when it cause, comes to closing polling places in various parts of the state, uh, no longer having preclearance has a, a huge impact, doesn't it? Oh, it has tremendous impact. And But, Bill, I also want to mention that the passage of the 65 Voting Rights Act, it was celebrated by my mother. She she went out and registered to vote for the very first time after the passage to sort of celebrate it. And and so it's been sort of personal to me ever since then. But but there there's been so much change and and I can recall uh, participating in the legislative process and getting out supporting candidates and the 65 Voting Rights Act uh, was responsible for Bobby Hill being elected to the state legislature in 1968, uh, the first person of color since Reconstruction to serve uh, from this area. Now, Scott, let's pick up on what you just said about your mother. What do you recall from that day and what she said about the bill being signed into law? It was a, That's a remarkable story. It was a jubilant time. Uh, we can remember watching the black and white television and the picture of uh, Dr. King with President Johnson and others just standing around when he signed the Voting Rights Act. It was uh, really quite a celebration, not just in D.C., but in all quarters. 
And, and so Savannah was uh, one of the more active political areas uh, during the entire 60s, uh, led by the efforts of WWLO and the NAACP down here. So it was a jubilant time for us in Savannah. Susan Catron, um, it strikes me that when we go back and look at the history of voting in this country, when we think about the Voting Rights Act, uh, people who fought uh, to succeed, hearing Al Scott tell his story, uh, it, it's hard not to, when you dig into that, think about the sacredness of our right to vote and contrast to that the fact that today, and we'll get into this a little bit, there seems to be more skepticism about our votes and how they're counted, how we're offered an opportunity to vote than ever before. And, and I find that very dispiriting. I, I couldn't agree more. I see that it's the tide. I don't know that the tide's the right word, but the perspectives have changed in from, I know when I was growing up, people would dress up to go vote. I grew up in a small town. It was special. That's what you did. You would go dress up. You would vote. You would see the people there. Now, it's it's very different, and people are skeptical. It's it's. I think it's part of a trend where we throw water on tradition. We throw water on things that are part of who we believe or what we believe is a foundation for America, um, and we try to undermine the system, and so that you don't have confidence. And I, I feel very strongly that's what goes on when there's no merit to the argument you have a politician will throw out something to just undermine the source as a messenger as as a journalist i feel that but um when it comes to voting i, I see the same thing you know let's throw let's let's tear down the process now that's not to say the process doesn't have problems it hasn't had problems and isn't vulnerable to problems it is and we're very well aware of those now um, Secretary Raffensperger, let's bring the conversation uh, to 2020, and let's just go back a little bit, and uh, I'd love to talk with you uh, about what you've uh, had to cope with, uh, starting really in 2019, but bringing us all the way forward to today. So uh, at the end of last year, we probably thought, no, we knew that the biggest issue you were going to contend with was getting all of the new voting machines up and running, getting them distributed to counties across the state of Georgia, making sure they were all working properly, that they interfaced with printers and optical readers properly. And uh, you were preparing, I assume, an education campaign that was going to help voters figure out how to use those machines. And uh, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, and we were preparing first and foremost for the uh, presidential uh, primary, which was supposed mm -hmm. to take place on Tuesday, March 24th. And, of course, the coronavirus came along and changed everything. Your first step was to move that primary to the same day as the general primary, when we vote for all other primary elections in the state, and you moved that to May 19th. And then after uh, seeing where things stood through April or through late March and early April, you realize we probably couldn't get it up and running until now we're scheduled to vote on June 9th. Talk about that process for you. Well, uh, it's yeah, certainly an interesting time. 
uh, we ended up uh, securing 33,000 new ballot marking devices. And that a lot of that came out of the safe commission and Dean Cox uh, spoke at the meeting we had down at Macon uh, just after I believe I'd been elected, but uh, she's been one of our strongest supporters and proponents based on her experience with the new machines that she had to put it, bring into service in 2002. So we had the 33,000 machines up and running uh, statewide, and we had two weeks, very successful. Voters loved them uh, for two weeks of that presidential primary. But you just watched the, the conditions out there in the field at the polling locations just deteriorate very quickly. And we started having your poll workers uh, were calling in and saying, I just don't feel comfortable coming in. Uh, voting was starting to tail off also. And that's when we made the decision to postpone it. So we had two weeks of great uh, uh, use of those new machines. Then we pushed it out, like you said, you know, to the May 19th, and then we had to push it out three more weeks to June 9th. And so that's our date now. But in all that, then we had to really do a, a 180 and say, what is this going to look like in June? And what would that, what would it be one of the processes to go forward? And that's when we really made a big push to encourage people to vote absentee. So we sent out to 6.9 million of our over 7 million voters, our active registered voters, we sent them out an out application for an absentee ballot. Would you like to vote absentee? So that was your first question. You have to decide for yourself as a voter. And then if you did, which ballot did you want for the June primary now? Do you want a Democrat ballot, Republican, or independent? And over, right now we've had well over 750,000 voters have responded favorably that want to vote absentee, and that's just record numbers. And so that is a whole shift in the whole voting process uh, it's just a tremendous shift to all of a sudden, you know, vote in person to now voting absentee. So you need the different equipment, the ballot scanners, and we're working through that. And uh, it's just, you know, obviously we prepared for, you know, one set of conditions, and now we're prepared for another set of conditions. And I want to talk more about uh, the conditions you think we're going to have to prepare for, both for the absentee ballots uh, as well as in-person voting. But Kathy Cox did at-will absentee voting. Was that under your tenure as Secretary of State? No excuse when anybody could uh, request an absentee ballot, or did that come after you had already gone on to run for governor? Yes, we started the foundation for that. Um, we, I, I tried at one point to get all-male voting. <laughs> And uh, sort of got laughed out of the legislature. It's funny how as in as in M A I L, not M A L E. No, definitely not all M A L E. But um, Oregon was the first state to go to all M A I L voting, uh, and had a lot of success with that. And so when we were talking initially about moving to electronic voting, we we posed that to the legislature and to various study committees, but. Um, there was no appetite for it in those days, and of course, no need uh, like we've seen uh, current conditions have imposed on us. But yes, we did go um, to at-will so, absentee voting to remove all of those restrictions from people who wanted to vote uh, by absentee for any reason. So, so really what's important for our listeners, if they haven't been aware of this before now, is that Although certainly there are more people, as Secretary Raffensperger just pointed out, who are applying for absentee ballots than we've seen before. The fact of the matter is that anybody can apply for an absentee ballot in Georgia, no matter what the situation is, coronavirus or not. Right, Chairman uh, Al Scott? Oh, that's absolutely correct. But I'm not certain that uh, some of our 
of senior citizens are prepared to vote uh, by absentee ballot. I was out over the weekend, and uh, I engaged a 70-something-year-old woman, and I asked her if she sent in her request for an absentee ballot, and she says, nope. I asked her if she was going to, and she said, I don't think so. She said, uh, I really like voting in person. <laughs> so I, I don't think that, uh, uh, that it's going to take a while for folks to get used to voting by mail or voting by absentee ballot, although it's been around for quite some time and you have a segment of the population, people who are in nursing homes and et cetera, who use absentee ballots for every election. But when you really distribute them to everybody, uh, there are folk who have second thoughts about using them. That's so, very um, true. Susan, uh, uh, excuse me. Go ahead, Kathy. That, that is oh, very true from Chairman Scott's perspective that there are a, a significant swath of the population that just believe on Election Day they don't even vote early. They go on Election Day. They might take advantage of early voting, but they want to go in person. That's part of their patriotic duty. And so this is a culture shift for them. And as a result of that, Bill, so, we, the county has invested in, in uh, a lot of uh, – hand sanitizer and et cetera to have it at the polling place just in case. And, and of course, we are, we've really gone out to try to work with the election board and, and its chairman to try to find out exactly what they need for poll workers in terms of protective equipment. So the county has gone out and bought masks, gloves, and, and uh, Tyvek suits and everything else to make the poll workers feel safe. And so we're we're taking into consideration in case folks don't return their absentee ballot and more folks showed up than expected that we want to try to make it as safe as possible for the poll workers. And then we're going to encourage people who are going to vote, period, if they have masks and if masks are available, to please wear them. Exactly. We're encouraging the yeah, same Su- thing. Uh, I'm, uh, Susan, let me uh, get you back in the mix if I could here. Um, one of the things that uh, has been uh, one of the issues that's been raised by a dramatic increase p- potentially in the people who will actually vote absentee, we know the applications have been enormously, uh, there have been a huge number of those. But, you know, what we've now heard is President Trump say that uh, he doesn't like absentee balloting. He thinks it favors Democrats. He thinks it's corrupt when Democrats uh, vote uh, absentee. And then you had, for a period of time, David Ralston, the Speaker of the Georgia House, kind of echo that sentiment, saying it's really good for Democrats. He he sort of backtracked a little bit by saying, well, I was just talking about the potential for fraud. But, I mean, I, to me, that's still laying it at the feet of Democrats as being somehow more uh, willing to uh, try to rig a, an absentee election. I, to talk about that that injection of partisanship around the value of absentee balloting, Susan? You know, I've heard exactly what you just described, but I've also heard it from the other side, that the Republicans are trying to rig the system to keep people from showing up and keep coming, you know, from coming to the polls at all. Um, I think it, I think you're hearing it from both sides in an, in a, in an unprecedented way. We are now, instead of trying to keep people from being eligible, we're just keeping them from the polls by spreading doubt. 
and I, I read um, a number of letters to the editor every day. I read um, this thing we have called Vox Populi, where, pe where people can just call in what they're thinking, and that's always interesting. And that doubt is landing. It, it comes through many, it comes through social media, it comes in other ways, but it is landing, and people are losing faith in the process. And I don't necessarily, yes, it's partisan-driven in some cases, but it's not just one side. It's coming from everywhere. Um, I had someone tell me the other day they didn't want to be a poll worker anymore because one party had were, was running the polls. And I said, um, I don't think you're right about that. That's not how it works here. It's, it's actually the other side. And she goes, well, it doesn't matter now. I saw it, I saw it on the news. So, I, you know, you, you just Secretary look at it, look, yeah, and you don't know. <laughs> go, well, Secretary well, Raffensperger, thing, you, you, yeah, go ahead. Well, first thing I want to say is I've, I've met an awful lot of the county election officials. I was making a point to visit the counties, and then we've had our counts, uh, our uh, conventions that we have. And one of the, I, I never really asked the county election officials where they vote, left or right, down the middle. But what I see in all of them has been integrity. And so, and then that's, that's really the essence of what America, what makes America so great is when we have good people from both different perspectives that have integrity. And when they're, when they're working the, the elections and those are your, your election officials for the county, then you can sleep well at night knowing that you won that race because you deserved to win, you got more votes, or you lost because you didn't get enough votes. And that's what, you know, our job is, anyone that's involved in the election process, is to make sure we have that integrity. I think it starts at that of personal integrity with our county election folks. So it's a shame that that lady didn't volunteer as a poll worker, and surely then you just see that maybe these people voted that side of the aisle and she votes on the other side of the aisle. It doesn't really matter. She's going to see integrity, and then she'll have that sense of confidence and um, it is what it is. She made her decision not to be a poll worker, but I've just seen integrity throughout the system, and that gives me great hope in our system, but also in Georgia and America. Secretary Raffensperger, um, uh, we got to get to a break in a minute, but before we do, in talking about these partisan elements that I'm uh, in introducing into the conversation, I did think we see very few uh, signs of real bipartisanship these days in almost anything to do with politics. But I did think it was interesting that after you made the first switch from March 24th and suggested that we should all be voting in the May 19th general primary election for president and all other offices, it was the state Democratic Party chair, Nakima Williams, and others in the Democratic Party who supported you, who said, we'll work with you to move forward on this. And, and they were a little bit more reluctant than some of your Republican colleagues to want to move it again, which is fascinating uh, uh, to me, uh, Mr. Raffensperger. Well, it's one of those things. One day, you know, everyone loves you. The next day, they don't. It's, you just put your head down. And each day, we, 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 we are putting voters first, and we're really looking at our poll workers. The average age of our poll workers is 70-plus. And so those are two really uh, huge constituencies that we have to pay attention to. You know, it's it's wonderful that everyone shows up there and they want to vote, but we better have some poll workers there. And so it really, both of those two constituents are very important. So I, I work for both of them. Bill, if I All right, I want to do a break right now. Go ahead. Sure, Kathy. The, 
there's not much that elevates my blood pressure more than this argument about voter fraud in Georgia, because it has been a partisan urban legend that has been perpetrated in this state for decades. Uh, I, I remember being asked about it as a witness in federal court uh, if I had experienced a single episode of voter fraud during the decade that I served in the Secretary of State's office, and I could not point to one in the form that they were asking about. Now, we had some vote buying and selling in a big way down in Dodge County, uh, but of the type of voter vote, people showing up trying to vote twice or multiple times, the things that get perpetrated as fact are just not happening in Georgia. But it is a myth that continues to be perpetrated, and it's happening again this year, not just in Georgia, but on a national scale. Uh, and it's it's being attacked by a hammer going after a gnat in a form that I'm fearful is just being done to intimidate voters. Well, you you know, uh, uh, Dean Cox, you have set us up for exactly what I'd like to talk about after we take a break. But let's do that right now. And when we come back, more on Election 2020 with our terrific panel. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind. This is a special edition of the show uh, because it's a partnership with the League of Women Voters of Coastal Georgia and their terrific president, Rebecca Rolfs, who was an enormous help in putting all of this together for us. Uh, The League is marking the 55th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, uh, signed on August 6, 1965. And uh, this conversation, which was supposed to take place in Savannah in a town hall, uh, has been uh, sheltered in place so that none of us, uh, except for Susan and Al Scott, uh, are, are in Savannah right now. And let me reintroduce the panel. I mentioned Susan. I'm talking about Susan Catron, the executive editor of the Savannah Morning News, Al Scott, the chairman of the Chatham County Commission, Kathy Cox, former secretary of state and now the dean of the, Univer- of the School of Law at Mercer University. And we're very happy to have with us secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, one of the busiest people on the planet right now. Um, Secretary Raffensperger, Kathy Cox made a very impassioned statement just before the break about the lack of evidence for much in the way of voter fraud here in Georgia or for that matter across the country. You have literally just appointed a task force of law enforcement officials, somewhat intimidating group, Secretary Raffensperger, who you are charging with ferreting out absentee ballot fraud. And I want to talk about that with you and understand your thinking behind that. Sam Burmis Dawes, our producer, did some research on absentee ballot fraud. He went back uh, uh, at least a couple of decades and uh, 
looked at a Heritage Foundation report. Heritage Foundation, a pretty conservative organization, has kept records on voter fraud, on absentee voter fraud, among other kinds. They came across 20 examples in more than 20-plus years of actual absentee ballot fraud, and several of them were really, really minor. There were a couple of major ones as well. But why are you uh, putting together a large and pretty beefy task force for something that most people think doesn't really happen very often? Well, uh, I've chaired now the state election board for the last 14, 15 months as secretary of state, and we've seen things come before us. Uh, we've had one fellow that voted in North Carolina, also voted in Georgia. We just You see things. And I always believe that it's better to be prepared than unprepared because absentee balloting up until this year was about 5 maybe 7% of the voting. The other 95% of the people were half were going to vote the three weeks of early voting, and then other half would vote the day of voting. But all of a sudden this year, we will have well over 50% of our people voting with the absentee ballot. And we want us to be prepared. We also want to let people know that if you're planning on doing something, that we are going to be watching. And if something doesn't seem right, we'll be having the resources to jump on it. We want fair, accurate, clean, honest elections. That's all we want. I think if people win an election, great. Win it honestly. And if you lose it, lose it honestly. My dad brought me up that way. And I know your fathers and parents brought you up the same way that, you know, play by the rules. If you win, you win. If you lose, you lose. You know, we don't. One team doesn't get four downs. The other team gets three downs. Everyone gets four downs to make their, you know, make their first downs. And so that's how we want to play the game of politics. It's not a game. I know it's to get people elected, but you have to play it, you know, with staying within the guardrails and do it lawfully. And so we just wanted to also make sure, as we formed that, you know, task force committee, that we really had people that represented all different parts of the state geographically, uh, different backgrounds election experts, so we could speak some truth and wisdom into the process. Chairman Scott, uh, give us your take on this, because what I just thought I heard... I don't have any concerns with the the task force to weed out cheating on absentee ballots, but I'd love to see a task force to encourage people to exercise their constitutional rights to vote and encourage people to vote. Uh, My concern is not people cheating. My concern is getting people to vote, period. And because of uh, when you start talking about a task force to show the integrity of the election, uh, most people see that as just another way for elected officials to inject themselves in the election process when they should not. And so I I take great care, and, and everybody who works uh, at the election board are county employees. And uh, I, nobody ever talks to those folk about what party they're in or anything else. But I, I have a great deal of faith in, in, in the process. And I think those who vote absentee ballot for the most part will be done completely fair. And, and this process might even be better than previous because before the absentee ballots were counted by hand, this time they will have to be scanned in the machine, uh, the same if you were voting in person. So uh, we've appropriated extra dollars to make certain that we have 
the personnel on hand to actually scan these ballots in anticipation of an increase of uh, folk participating. But uh, I think there is less chance of fraud under the current system than there were in the past. But I would love to see some sort of task force to encourage people to vote and, and to try to get rid of that urban myth that Secretary Cox was talking about that's lived in Georgia for so long. Bill, here's Mr. My Chairman, one it. other quick question. Go, go ahead, Kathy. Go ahead. It, it wouldn't be too hard to interpret uh, Secretary Raffenberger's statement as saying, look out, Georgia voters, we're watching you, we're coming after you. What concerns me about the task force that he's appointed is that it is composed of two election superintendents and eight prosecutors. I would be surprised if any of those prosecutors have ever handled an election matter in their whole career. If if it was really designed to go after election issues, why isn't it made of eight election superintendents and two prosecutors? I think it's designed to intimidate voters. I think it's a part of a national strategy. West Virginia has just appointed the same prosecutor-heavy type of task force. I think Republican-led secretaries of state around the country are being urged to do this to show voters, we're watching you, we're coming after you. Everybody is against fraud, but it's not happening. And like Chairman Scott said, if our resources were being directed to encourage people to get out to vote, that would be one thing. But to, to spend these kind of resources to go after a problem that does not exist is not, in my opinion, the best use of our resources, uh, certainly in these crisis times. I have to say all right, Secretary to... Ravensberger, it's all yours. <laughs> well, uh, I do know that as I was running for office, I read, the, I read the bipartisan presidential commission, and that was co-chaired by President Jimmy Carter and Secretary of State Baker. And President Jimmy Carter, if you look at his history, when he first was uh, elected as a state senator, uh, someone tried to steal that election. And so that's why the Carter Center has always worked hard, uh, I believe, uh, at making sure we have election integrity, not just in America, but throughout the world. It's been near and dear to his heart. But in that 2005 report, he said the, the greatest area of potential fraud in the whole election system is in the absentee ballot process. So, so there's, you know, President Carter understands that, and many people do. And so we just want to make sure that we have guardrails, that everyone's playing with fair rules. And so we don't, you know, mean to, you know, we want people to, and also to the chairman's point, a task force to encourage people to vote. Absolutely. But that's why we've done so much in Georgia that we've opened it up so that people can register to vote very easily with online deed through the Department of Driver Services. And so we people need to have that civic, that patriotic uh, you know, feeling that they should be voting because it's very important, because your vote does count, your vote does matter. And when people say that it doesn't, that's not helpful because it disillusions people that they say, they end up with the cynicism that, oh, it doesn't matter. Every one single person does matter. And you really see it at the city council level, at your county commission level, these close, smaller elections, when people uh, win an election by, by one vote or five votes, things like that. So, yes, every vote counts. 
And sometimes when it's a big race, like for the president, people say, well, my one vote doesn't matter. But together, it always adds up to someone's going to win and someone's not going to win. And so we don't want to place uh, any impediments to voting. We also want to make sure it's a fair process. I think, but uh, respond to what Kathy Cox said to you about why is the uh, task force so heavily weighted toward uh, prosecutors and not election uh, right, uh, uh, what, uh, not election officials who really understand the whole process. Well, the the, the day-to-day work is really head up, headed will be headed up by Frances Watson. She's our chief investigator. She's been in, in our office, and also Chris Harvey, who's our elections director. And he's been in our the Secretary of State's office now for well over uh, 10 years. And so they're doing the day-to-day work. Uh, we have post-certified investigators. So they're the ones when they get, you know, information, they'll be uh, doing the investigation just like any other, you know, law enforcement agency would do. So that that's really the day-to-day work. The other folks, I would consider them more as like an advisory uh, panel uh, oversight, but also to share information with uh, just so that they're aware of what we're uh, finding out there. At the end of the day, I would love to be able to say that we didn't find a single case. And I think everyone on both sides of the aisle would be really excited about that. It's not because we didn't look for it. It's not that people didn't report, but there wasn't anything to report. Because then all of a sudden, you know, we can put an end to that urban myth that everyone says is out there. And that's what our hope is, is that people understand that Georgia is a great place to, you know, build a business, raise a family, but also a great place to vote because you know your know your vote counts. So, Susan, I want to give you a chance to ask a question. Yeah, go ahead. That's what I was yeah, going to say. Now you, here's the thing. I, was, I, I had actually the same reaction to the task force, and it's very, after the fact, investigatory. But if you're in a process to see what happened, how did you go about selecting these people? Because, you know, in my mind, a technology expert would have been somebody to talk to or somebody to talk about the process because that's where the fraud often would occur. It has in other places. Um, I don't see any technology specialists or people outside the system. These are people who are used to enforcing the law. They're people within the system. And I was curious if that was the reasoning. Well, Chris Harvey's our elections director, and his team of folks uh, are really uh, very strong on the on the technology side of both the system and the processes. So we have uh, our internal resources. We have in our office, you know, an office total system-wide of about 200 people in the Atlanta area. Some of that's corporations, securities, and and the other areas. But we have our own resources. So they'll really be the ones tasked with looking at, you know, systems like that and working with the counties. So that would be internal. Um, Okay. Okay. Bill, I would also say that... We got... Go ahead. That I've read the Carter Baker report, and I would suggest that it's... It would not apply to today. The absentee ballots that they were in reference to uh, doesn't exist today, not in not in this country at least. And when you cheat in elections, then is that people's absentee ballots went missing. They were not counted, and there were paper ballots being counted by hand, tallied. And back then, you had probate judges who was in charge of elections. So. I, I applaud the, the report, but the report is, uh, would not be applicable in today's elections. 
All right, I've got to get to another break. I, as we go to another break, I do think I it's important because I know that there are folks at the Carter Center who listen to this show pretty regularly to point out that when Jimmy Carter started monitoring elections around the world, Secretary Raffensperger alluded to it. It was usually to go into countries where they where autocratic leaders, dictators, others might stop people from being able to vote fairly and honestly, uh, which I think is a little bit different. Uh, from the conversation we were having uh, just a few minutes ago. In any case, we've got to get a final break of the show out of the way, and we still have a lot more to talk about with our panel about Elections 2020. Uh, Secretary Ravensburger, as you well know, an African-American voting rights group went into federal court uh, this past week. Uh, They were in front of Judge Totenberg, federal Judge Totenberg, and uh, they uh, filed a lawsuit saying that uh, people who have to put stamps on their in returning their absentee ballots are being forced to pay a poll tax. They have to pay for the cost of the tax. Uh, I know uh, the state fought against that lawsuit. Judge Totenberg said that since voting was really already underway, she didn't see how they could do that fairly, make a change now. But she did suggest that she might be willing to look at this issue again in time for the August runoff elections. Uh, how do you feel about this notion that people should not have to pay to vote? Well, if she ruled that way, that uh, we needed to put stamps on, it would be the first state in the union that does that. Uh, so it'd be well out of the mainstream. But already the United States Postal Service said if someone doesn't put a stamp on, they're going to deliver that ballot because they understand that it's a ballot and it's very important to be there. Uh, it's one of those things that we've never done before. Uh, many other states don't. I know that New York a state doesn't. And we could, you know, poll all the other states to see who actually pays for the stamp. So we don't uh, and we strongly don't believe that's a poll tax and we don't believe that's an undue burden. But also to that end, that's why we've also opened up the drop-off boxes so people don't want to you know, put in a stamp that, or they want to you know, just deliver their ballot to make sure it gets where they want it to go. Uh, then they can go ahead and have drop boxes. So counties will be putting out secure drop boxes under video sur- surveillance so people can drop off their absentee ballots, similar to what other states have done. It, are th- Am I correct that those boxes in some counties were already – did I see that April 21st was supposed to be a starting date for some of those boxes to be out there, uh, Mr. Secretary? I know that uh, one of the counties uh, just had a meeting uh, – it was Fulton County I'm referring to. I know they're in the process, or it's actually Gwinnett County. So all the counties are working on that. In fact, Commissioner probably you know, maybe share where his county is on that process. But uh, many people have just gotten – just received their – uh, absentee ballots in the last few days, uh, and so that they're just out there getting out there now. But the counties are in the process. That was through a, a, a new rule we put in with the state election board to put uh, ballot boxes for absentee ballots uh, at the county level. So many of the counties will be doing that. Al Scott, what, mi- yes. What are you going to do about Al Scott? Well, you know we have. We have a board of election and and a chair of that board, and they are deciding what locations that they are going to place 
boxes. I, I do know that they have a concern about security, so wherever they put the boxes will have to be under constant surveillance, either by a person or by electronic means. And so they're taking that under consideration. And in fact, uh, the hours in which the box will be available for you to deposit your ballot. I mean, it does seem like an awfully smart solution when we're trying to avoid uh, uh, close contact with one another. But I, obviously, there are challenges that people like you, uh, Chairman Scott, are going to have to do with. Uh, Susan Catron, uh, you got any? I, I want to give you an opportunity to jump in again. Uh, uh, if you have a question you'd like to ask anybody, we're getting close to the end of the show, but I want to get you back into the conversation. Well, the one thing we had here in Chatham County was um, we had a school board district left off one ballot and put on another ballot. Uh, district 7 was left off the District 7 ballot and put it on District 4. And they found it out over the weekend, fixed it over the weekend, and started mailing out new ballots. But in this reporting, we... You know, I, I, we could have done the math much earlier, but we found out there are 552 permutations of the Chatham County ballot alone. How many are there in the state, and how are these handled? That's uh, – I'll answer that question. There are over 10,000 ballot styles throughout the state of Georgia. So you look at Chatham County, multiply that by 159. I mean, you're a larger county, but you get an idea of how many different ballot styles there are. And so the counties review their ballots, and uh, there's been uh, a few areas where this has happened. Uh, but I, I'm not the one. I don't want to pick on our counties. They have a lot on their plate right now. And if you look at out of the 10,000, if you have these few incidences, incidences, yes, it's uh, something that we have to work on. We don't want to have. We want to have zero defects, obviously. But uh, when the counties put together every once in a while, it does happen. I know another county. Uh, in the one county that the state rep was uh, representing, he was not listed as the incumbent. In the other county where he, he represents, he was listed as the incumbent. It's those minor things. That, in the case, is a minor error. Obviously, living off uh, an election for the 8th District uh, School Board was a bigger issue. But uh, we jumped on that with the county to rectify the situation, and uh, we worked through it. Kathy Cox, um I want to ask you a question as we get closer to being finished with the show today. Um, there is, you kind of referred to it earlier, you were the Secretary of State who began the movement towards no excuse uh, absentee ballots. Um, to what extent do you think, where do you weigh in on this interesting debate right now, whether our elections should all be handled uh, by mail or some other way to vote than to walking into a polling place. It's been so successful in states like Oregon, for example. Do you, do you have a sense of what we ought to be thinking about doing moving forward? Well, I think since we've made the investment in uh, our new touchscreen voting equipment, I like it. Secretary Raffensperger has been good in showing it to me. I think it is a nice upgrade to what we had and to the discussion we had earlier for those voters who still want to vote in person uh, and feel like that is their right to do. I think we still ought to offer that. Had we taken the bait when I offered it a number of years ago and made that decision to go to an all-postage, uh, all-mail-in balloting system like Oregon did many years ago, I think we could have 
made that conversion for a lot less cost uh, in the end. But I think it's sort of water under the bridge now. Uh, and But I think this pandemic experience will probably lead us toward much more of a dual system where a lot more people now, I think, will be comfortable voting by absentee and will choose that method of voting, whereas other people will always want to go to the polling places in the future. Um, so we have that issue. If I could have time to bring up one question, I would like to ask the secretary. There d does appear to be uh, an error in a lot of absentee ballots that are being mailed out right now without the inner envelope. Uh, and so I'd, I'd certainly love to hear him comment and confirm to everybody that those votes are going to be counted, whether they get returned with or without an inner envelope, uh, and how the secrecy of the ballot's going to be protected. Right. Well, you got about 30 seconds to answer that. <laughs> Thank you for that question. Uh, it, it should have been called a sleeve instead of an envelope. The real purpose of that more than anything else, was that when your ballot has been uh, mailed, is that people hold it up to the light. You'd have that additional sleeve to protect it so people couldn't read who you're voting for. That was the number one uh, issue. And so we're working on that, um, you know, changing the wording. And we're also going to put a put a, uh, on secureVoteGA.com uh, a little video to show the voter uh, exactly what the process is on uh, putting his absentee ballot together I, to get ready to mail back. I, I got to make... I got to make that the last word. We are completely out of time uh, for today's political rewind. Uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Susan Catron of Savannah Morning News, Chairman Al Scott, Chatham County Commission, and uh, Kathy Cox, uh, University uh, Mercer University uh, Law School Dean. Thank you all so much for a really terrific conversation. Uh, we're going to talk about. We have to take, talk about voting again. Uh, Secretary Raffensperger, as we get close to June 9th, we're going to invite you to come back and talk to us about some very practical aspects of all this. What can people expect when they go to a polling place, making sure it's clean and sanitized and that sort of thing? So please, we hope you'll join us as we get closer to Election Day for that. Thanks again to all of you for a great conversation. I hope you all have a very safe weekend. Stay healthy. We'll be back with more Political Rewind on Monday. Take care, everybody.